Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter number 3 tonight. Galatians chapter number 3. What a blessing to be in the house of God with you. Amen. I praise the Lord for the opportunity to be with God's people. Man, there's no place I'd rather be than with God's people. Galatians chapter number 3 tonight. And uh, I want to read to you just the first five verses of this chapter. Galatians chapter number 3. And I want to preach to you on maybe a little bit different kind of thought this evening. And... Um, I know it seems like almost every service I say it's going to be a short sermon, so I ain't going to say that tonight. It's going to be long. I mean, long sermon. I mean, probably six, seven hours you'll be here. And uh, I, I figure I need to start lowering the bar, bro. Ken. <laughs> that way folks just ain't discouraged. Amen. Galatians chapter number three tonight. And we'll begin reading in verse number one. Paul writing to the church at Galatia. He uses some strong language, but language they needed to hear. He said, Oh, foolish Galatians. Who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that you give me the words to say, Lord, and may they be your words and not mine. And I pray that the sweet Holy Spirit would wield his word, his sword, the word of God tonight, uh, deftly in our hearts that he might deal with us according to thy will and transform us into the image of Christ. Father, we'll be sure to thank you. Lord, we know it won't be our ability, our strength. Lord, the arm of flesh will always fail us. Lord, if it's accomplished, it'll be because you've done it. So help us to be thankful. Help us uh, to have clear eyesight, spiritually speaking, about what you're doing tonight in our church, in our heart, in our life, in our families. We'll be sure to thank you. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Galatians chapter number 3, we have read just a a short uh, batch of verses here that is part of a larger discourse that the Apostle Paul is unveiling and unfolding before the church at Galatia. And if you were to study a little bit of the uh, context, the background uh, at the church at Galatia, what you would find is that Judaizers had infiltrated the church. Now, by that, I don't mean Jewish individuals. Of course, there were Jewish individuals, and I'm sure these Judaizers were Jewish individuals. But the church at Galatia, like almost every New Testament church, was a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the church at Ephesians, though it was a mixed multitude, didn't have the same battles that the church at Galatia had. The church at Corinth, the church at Colossae, the church uh, even at Philippi, no doubt, had Jewish believers in it, did not battle the same thing. But the thing that Paul is targeting here are a group of individuals that sought to bring and intermingle the works of the law and the worship of Old Testament Judaism in with the cross of Calvary. They wanted, we could maybe say it this way, to have your cake and to eat it too. Uh, they wanted to say that a man could be fully justified by Jesus Christ, and yet that he could not be justified unless he was circumcised first and foremost. They wanted to proclaim that a man could be saved and he would be right in the eyes of God, but he wouldn't be as good a Christian as the fellow next to him unless he kept the law and observed the Old Testament. 
And so the Apostle Paul uh, spends uh, several chapters just roundly dispelling that notion and that thought. He speaks boldly about the revelation of God he had received, that it didn't come from men, but it came from God on high. And he talked about how that God made abundantly clear to him that in the cross of Calvary, the requirements of the Old Testament law were done away with, and that now a man is reckoned uh, not by that standard, but rather by the person of Jesus Christ. And so in writing to the church at Galatia, he begins to use some strong language in chapter number 3. In fact, we might call people a fool or foolish quite often, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear that in God's heart and mind, to call someone a fool is strong language. The Bible says if you call a man a fool, uh, that you'd be in danger of hellfire, meaning if you just flippantly cast someone as foolish as uh, not knowing God and, and not aware of God. And yet the Apostle Paul uses this terminology very boldly, very bluntly. He says the Galatians had been behaving foolishly in flirting with the Old Testament law and intermingling the law with their concept of Christianity and of worship. So I want to be abundantly clear with what he's talking about. When he talks about the works of the law, he's talking about the works of the law. He's talking about the 600 and some odd commandments that are canonized in the Old Testament that at one time were placed as a requirement upon the Jewish nation. They never had the ability to justify any man, Jew or Gentile, but they were meant to condemn them in their hearts and show them that they were unrighteous and incapable of approaching unto God. And what God had meant for condemnation, they had taken and used for certification. What God had meant to show them that they were unrighteous they had taken and perverted it into a badge of righteousness. And Paul begins to uh, clearly condemn them for what they had done. Uh, but I want to preach to you tonight on this passage, but I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't, I don't believe we've probably got any Judaizers in here. If you are, raise your hand. Yeah, I didn't think we did. I doubt we've got anybody in here that's telling us we ought to keep the Old Testament law. And so what then would be the application to you and I as Gentiles? In fact, I'd say this, the Holy Ghost was smart enough to know that uh, the church would spend a lot more time with less of a focus on this in regards to Judaism uh, than it would with that focus on Judaism. Uh, by and large, didn't take very long in the sort of Jewish cultural identity that was so pervasive in the early New Testament church. When the Jews were persecuted and scattered in the diaspora, it became basically non-existent in the local church. And so what exactly then is the application to you and I? I want to make a few opening statements and observations, then I want to preach to you a short message. But the observations and statements might be four or five hours, all right? So don't get excited. Let me say a word number one tonight about the Jewish application of this passage. He's writing to a group of people that are being told basically two things. One, that they had to be circumcised to be saved. Paul spends a great deal of time showing that that is a false lie. A person doesn't have to have any outward show of the flesh for them to be saved. That's not what God respects. That's not what God honors. And even in the Old Testament, when circumcision had religious merit, it was always only as a symbol of a spiritual work that God sought to do in the human heart. Number two, the lie they were being told, is that to be a good Christian, they had to keep the law, or that keeping the law would make them a better Christian. We could probably say it this way, uh, that they were associating the law with salvation and with sanctification. 
And Paul makes clear to them that the law, keeping the law, had nothing to do with either of those things. We could maybe summarize by saying there were three wrong-headed ideas that by the days of Christ, Jews had pretty thoroughgoingly adopted concerning their attitude towards the law. Number one, they were leaning on the law for salvation. You find this all throughout the, uh, the uh, interactions and conversations between our Lord and the Pharisees in the Gospels. And I'm just going to give you just one very simply. Uh, whenever the Lord Jesus tells them that they need to believe on Him, uh, that they need to trust in Him, they say, we be the children of Abraham. He looks at them and says, if you'll believe on the Son, the Son will make you free. They said, we be the children of Abraham and never were in bondage to any man. Can I say number one, that's ahistorical. I mean, any Jew that knows their history would know that they had been in bondage before as a people. But they're talking distinctly about spiritual bondage. And here's what they were saying. We don't need your salvation because we have Abraham. Part of the problem in the Jewish relationship to the law in the Old Testament was what had been meant to show mankind that he was not righteous and could not get to God, they had taken and warped into the notion that if they kept the law, that meant they were okay with God. And so they were leaning on this for salvation. You find this pretty clearly in Mark chapter 10. Let me read just a few verses to you. You're probably familiar with this uh, interaction between the Lord Jesus and a man that we often call the rich young ruler. It says in Mark 10, 17, when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You think about that question. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? He believed that doing could secure you salvation. Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? I love, I, listen, I love the way the Lord Jesus talked to people, don't you? Uh, he didn't leave them any room to hide. He said, Why are you calling me good? You know what was wrong with this man was his concept of what goodness was. He saw goodness relative to human conduct uh, and not relative uh, to holy consecration. And the Lord Jesus says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Then he says, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Now here's what's amazing. He answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. In Matthew's account, he says, all these have I kept from my youth. Uh, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Now stop, wait a minute, think about this. He was saying, I have done everything the law has commanded. Am I good enough to go to heaven? Now, why was he asking that? Because their concept was that if they kept the law, that would square them with God. And the Pharisees themselves believed that just by dint of being, being, being descendants of Abraham and keepers of the law, that that must mean that they were okay and righteous with God. Jesus answers him back clearly. He says, one thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possession. Uh, that verse has been misinterpreted by a lot of people. A lot of people have said, so if, I, if I'm going to get saved, I have to go sell everything that, that, that I have. No, Jesus didn't say you've got one too many things, go get rid of them, and you'll have eternal life. He said you're missing one thing, and if you get that one thing, you'll have eternal life. You say, well, preacher, why did he tell him then to sell everything that he had? Because he wouldn't get the one thing he needed because of all that he already had. There's a lot of folks in the world today that are like that. 
They're clinging to their, they're clinging to their membership. They're clinging to their baptism. They're clinging to their good works. They're clinging to their charity. They're clinging to their labor. They're clinging to their service. They're clinging to their status. And they won't call on the cross of Calvary. They won't come to the cross because they say, I'm good enough as I am. Lord Jesus says, you're missing something. Get rid of all that stuff that's keeping you from getting the, the something you need and then go take up the cross. Because what was he missing? He was missing the cross. He said, I've been a good person. I've kept all these things. Jesus said, it doesn't matter. Number one, you're a liar because no one's kept all those things. But beyond that, even if you were to keep all of them, that wouldn't make you righteous with God. Because here's the problem, you're born in sin. And if something's not done about that sin nature, why did he say the cross? Because that's where the sin nature is dealt with. As well as the sin record, also the sin nature is dealt with at the cross. And he says, go get the cross. You get the cross and you'll have what it takes. So the Jewish mind, the Old Testament, they believed in leaning on the law for salvation. Number two, they believed in looking to the law as the standard. Now I want to be very careful with how I say this because it is true that the Old Testament law presented the standard of holy conduct that God esteemed. Part of the purpose in it was to set a standard and show mankind you don't measure up to that standard. But here instead is what the Pharisees did. They took the commandments of God, twisted them, polluted them, perverted them, molded them around their life like Play-Doh, and then said, I now am the standard in the way I keep the law. And if you don't keep the law the way I keep the law, then you must not be righteous. It's the very thing that they were doing at Galatia. Uh, they were saying, I'm a keeper of the law, and because I'm a keeper of the law, I now am the standard. I'm what righteousness looks like. You see, that, that's why, by the way, that's why a work salvation is a direct assault on the deity of Christ. Because the deity of Christ, His incarnation, He was given to manifest what righteousness looks like. For a person to say, I can work my way to heaven, they're taking the law of God and molding it around themselves, and they're now saying, Jesus is no longer the standard. I am the standard. What I'm doing is enough to secure heaven. And then they look at others and they say, now you live like I'm living. And if you don't live like I'm living, you must not be righteous. So it's true the law was a standard. But the problem is, they made it not a standard that pointed to Christ, but a standard that pointed to self. And because of that, they believed that if you didn't do what they did, you must not be a righteous person. Listen to how James deals with this. And by the way, James was a lover of the law. If you study James in the New Testament uh, and his role at Jerusalem, James was not someone that was averse to the Old Testament law. He seemed to have a reverence for it. But he had a biblical perspective. And so he says this in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, If ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, you're saying that you're keeping the law and that you are righteous and that if men will live as you do, they will be righteous people. You're saying that you're the standard. The only problem is you're a lawbreaker just like I'm a lawbreaker. And so the standard functions not to condone the behavior of mankind, but to condemn the behavior of mankind. So they believe that in keeping the law, at least according to their notion of it, 
that they were upholding the standard of righteousness. But then there's a third thing. Not only did they believe in leaning on the law for salvation and looking to the law as the standard, but they believed in laboring in the law as sanctification. In other words, they believed that if a man wanted to be righteous, all he had to do to attain that righteousness was to keep the law. And you say, well, how do you know this? Well, Paul's own words, I think, are clear enough in this. Listen how he describes himself before he got saved, what his mind frame was. Philippians chapter 3, he says this, verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You know, by the way, he's writing to Gentiles and Jews there. And he calls all of them circumcision. You know why? Because he's saying we're part of that spiritual circumcision. We worship God in the Spirit. We have no confidence in the flesh. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying circumcision is not a sign made in the flesh, spiritually speaking, but it is an operation of God in the heart. He's saying it's not reflected probably, and I don't want to be crass or, or blunt or graphic, but probably the people he's writing about were not physically circumcised. Many of them were Gentiles, but he calls them the circumcision. Why? Because of the spiritual operation that God had done in their heart. And he says this, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, as touching the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee. He says, in other words, I was part of that group that meticulously kept the law as we understood it. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now listen to what he says. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Isn't it interesting the way he connects those two things? He says, what we understood to be righteousness from the law, concerning that, He said, I was blameless. Why? Because he was a Pharisee. He goes on to say, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done that I may win Christ. Remember, the Jews, their concept of the law was that if they kept the law, it would make them righteous. Well, in their eyes, it made them righteous. But listen to the exchange that Paul makes when he gets born again. He said, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of law. Do you remember what he said a little earlier in that when he said, uh, touching the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless? He was not blameless before the law of God any more than you or I are. But here's what they would do. They would take and twist and warp the law, to only deal with the areas of life that they were already lined up with, and they would have a sort of righteousness. Paul would say this in the book of uh, Romans about the Jews, that they going about to establish their own righteousness have rejected the righteousness of God. They would say, we are righteous because we're keeping the law. Paul says, hey, I made up my mind that I wanted to be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul said, I had to decide between self-righteousness or spiritual righteousness. And when I had to choose between those two things, I made a choice that I was going to recognize myself not righteous in the eyes of God so that I could be made righteous through the cross of Calvary. So to the Jewish mind, how it had been perverted and polluted by the time you reached the days of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and when Paul's writing 
They basically had three wrong-headed ideas about the law. And Paul in other places make ab- makes abundantly clear that the law was not given for these reasons. They were leaning on the law for salvation. But the Bible says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. They were looking to the law as the standard, meaning that they in their life were keeping a standard. But Paul says the law was given that every mouth would become would be stopped and the whole world would become guilty before God. And they were laboring in the law as sanctification. But the Bible says that God hath declared all of us guilty under the law. None of us are righteous according to the law. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and he says, listen, this is a wrong perspective concerning the Old Testament law. And then he begins to ask him some questions. Now, before we get those questions, I've spent a little time talking about the Jewish application of this passage. And admittedly, the immediate context was Judaizers in the church at Galatia. But I'm not dealing with Judaizers in the church at Walridge. So here's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about the Gentile adaptation of this passage. Because if you study your Bible, here's what you'll find. The Old Testament, the Jews had a law. It was 600 and some odd commandments given from Sinai's hill, the very words of God that were given to condemn them and show them as helpless to attain unto God's righteousness. But Paul tells us this, Jews had a law, but Gentiles likewise have a law. It is not the law of commandment, but listen to how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 2. He says, for not the hearers of the law, verse 13, are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Here's the plain and simple truth. The Jews in the Old Testament had the law of commandment. But Gentiles likewise had a law, but it was the law of conscience. Both of these laws were given for the same reason, to condemn a man. Now, you can, just as they could could warp and twist the law of God to make it endorse their way of living. Likewise, there's plenty of Gentiles walking around in the world today that warp and twist their conscience to condoning, to uh, not only accusing, but excusing the way that they live. But just... Like the Jews concerning law of commandment, I would say this tonight. The same dangers, the same pitfalls that were present for the Judaizers in that day are present today for us Gentiles concerning the law of conscience. Let's stop and just think about them. We won't spend as much time on them, but I just want to... Let's see. Let's see if this theory bears out. I would say, number one, remember, the Jews were leaning on the law for salvation. Do Gentiles lean on self, Brother Charlie, for salvation? I'd say they absolutely do. If you were to walk up and down the streets in Knoxville, Tennessee, and if you were to knock on doors and ask people if they're going to heaven, the vast majority of them would say, yes, I am. Yes, I am. And then if you were to say, what makes you believe that? Very, very few of them could give you any kind of coherent answer. Most of them couldn't even give you a wrong answer, let alone a right answer. Most of them would just look at you and go, I don't know. Well, now, what does that mean? What it means is this. They're saying... Nobody said that I'm righteous. Nobody said God is okay with my life. Nobody said that I'm on my way to heaven. But I just sort of assumed that because I'm doing my best and trying to be a good person, I must be on my way to heaven. In other words, just as the Jew would say, though no one said the law could save a man, though no one said the law could justify a man, I'm just assuming that me keeping the law, I'm doing a good enough job 
that surely God will take me on to heaven one day. Just as it was wrong for the Jew in the Old Testament, it's wrong for the Gentile, be it Old Testament, New Testament, in leaning on the law of self for salvation. Now, what was the next one? Well, looking to the law as the standard. Remember, the Old Testament Jew, the law was given as a standard, yes, but not a standard to condone their life, but to condemn it to say, you do not live up to this. Likewise, uh, what man is there whose conscience would not condemn him if he were honest? It's part of the reason I don't have a lot of patience when people talk about hypocrisy. They'll talk about church folks and they'll say, well, there are a bunch of hypocrites down there. Um, I agree. I'm the biggest one. And guess who's also a hypocrite? That person sitting on their couch this evening preaching to people that love God enough to go to church about religion. They're also a hypocrite. Fact is, we're all a bunch of hypocrites. Because if we listen to what our conscience says, our conscience will always condemn us. But here's what we've done. Just like the Jews took something meant uh, for the kin to condemn them and use it to condone them, Gentiles likewise. You know what they do? They take the law of self and conscience and use it instead of condemning them, which it rightly does, they use it to condone them. People soothe their consciences. They tell themselves whatever lies they have to to believe that they are a good person. And isn't it always amazing? You say, how good does a person have to be to go to heaven? Well, if you talk to the average person, it's just exactly as good as they are. If you're any worse than they are, you're going to a devil's hell and deserve every bit of it. If you're doing better than they are, that's good, but you're a bit of an overachiever. Isn't it amazing? We said a word about this the other night, uh, talking about Calvinists, you know. I've never met a Calvinist whose kids want an elect. Isn't that amazing? Knock me over with a feather, you know. I mean, your kids might be on their way to hell, and ain't nothing you or God or anybody can do about it, but their kids are always perfect, prissy little kids are always on their way to heaven, right? On the same way, isn't it convenient how when a man's leaning on self, the standard for righteousness always just happens to be, just big coincidence, it just happens to be exactly how they're living. Well, listen, that's no accident. Gentiles do the exact same thing. They lean upon self as the standard. Now, wait a minute. What was that third thing? It was laboring in the law as sanctification. Saying that what I'm doing, and by the way, Jews did keep the law. They kept it imperfectly. They kept portions of it. Some of it they kept and maintained the spirit of the law, very little of it. A lot of it they kept and they maintained the letter of the law but lost the spirit of it. And a greater portion they even perverted and polluted away from even the letter of the law and used the tradition of men as their standard in their life. But you say, preacher, they believed by keeping the law that made them righteous. By the same token, how many people out there do you know? Good people. That's the way they define themselves. I'm a good person. And they believe that what they do in their morality and their goodness is enough to make them righteous before God. I want to ask you five questions and I'll be done tonight. Considering this thought concerning the law of Jews and of Gentiles, and we could maybe encapsulate this idea of how the Gentiles interact with their conscience in the notion of self, trusting self, looking to self, using intuition, instead of using the revelation of the Word of God. Using uh, our instinct instead of using what God has taught us and declared boldly and plainly in the Word of God. Looking to self, what are these five questions that Paul asks? I want to preach to you for just a few moments tonight on questioning your faith. Questioning your faith. Now, when I say questioning your faith, I do not mean having a crisis of faith. Nor do I even necessarily mean taking a deep dive on the coherent nature of what you believe. But I mean the Apostle Paul looks at these people that are being laid prey to by the, the Judaizers 
And he says there's some questions you need to ask yourself concerning how you got saved, what God did in your life, and exactly how you're living and what value is to come of it. Notice these five questions and we'll be done tonight. I believe that every one of us, we ought to question our faith in this sense. We ought to question it concerning the person of our faith. Notice the first question in verse 1. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Notice that Paul did not say what, but he said who. He said there is somebody behind this whole damnable lie that seeks to destroy you. And you need to stop and ask yourself, who is it that has done the most for me in my life? Can I ask you this simple question tonight? When you and I in our life are tempted to go our own way, to live our own way, to do our own thing, to lean upon self instead of seeking God, to lean upon our own sense of what's right instead of obeying the Word of God, we ought to ask ourselves this simple question. Who did the most for us, self or the Savior? Where exactly does this spirit of leaning upon yourself come from? In fact, I'd say this. If I read my Bible right, pretty much the whole point of it is to say that self is not sufficient. Be that self manifested through the works of the law or be that self manifested through the just nameless, shapeless self-righteousness that we just instinctively lean upon when we want to reject God. But whatever the form or nature or manner of that self is, it's always really the same old question. Am I going to listen to me or am I going to listen to God? And that being the question, I just simply ask you this, what changed? When you got born again, you got born again because you quit listening to you. You was telling you, ah, don't go to God, you're all right on your own. You was telling you, you know, you're probably good enough as you are. You was telling you, ah, don't go down and pray, it'll be embarrassing. People might say this and that. And here's what you did. You said, hush, you, God's Word is true. You said, I'm not going to listen to self. I'm going to listen to what God has to say about who I am and what I am and what I need in my life. Paul looks at these Judaizers and he essentially asks you this question. Who is it that's drawn you away from the Lord that has bought you, that has paid the price for you, that has saved you? He uses this terminology. He said, uh, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And there's a lot we could say about that because, again, I'd remind you, these people are telling these uh, uh, believers at Galatia that they needed the sacrifices of the tabernacle uh, or of the temple to be made righteous with God. And Paul uses that language to remind them the sacrifices are done with because the sacrifice has been made. He's reminding them we don't need the lambs because the Lamb of God has already come. But can I just distill it a little more just for you and I and say this, don't we realize that in Jesus Christ coming and dying for us, we have the great indictment of mankind's self-reliance. If we could have got to heaven, why do He have to die in our place? And knowing that He's died in our place when we could not save ourselves, why would we allow ourselves to be drawn away from leaning on Him and instead just leaning on self? I think you ought to question your faith concerning the person of your faith. And what I mean by that is ask yourself this, who are you trusting? Who are you depending on? I, and I probably shouldn't take this for granted. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's lots of unsaved folks that hide out in church for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. 
But assuming that in a Sunday night, like tonight, probably most everybody, if not everybody in here is born again and saved, uh, and you know God is your Savior. That being the case, let me say this. I'm not even talking about it in the realm of salvation. I'm talking about it in the realm of service. I'm talking about it in the realm of direction. I'm talking about it in the realm of consecration. What are you looking to to make you who you need to be in the eyes of God? Are you just sort of fumbling and feeling your way through? Just trusting instinct? Or are you getting this Bible and living and walking in the truth of what it says? I think we ought to question our faith concerning the person of our faith. Look at the second question, verse number 2. He says this, This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Well, to question our faith concerning the partaking of our faith. And there may be just a little uh, slight bend of redundancy in my preaching. And not if, that's, if that happens, you just give me a little grace. But can I just ask you this question? How did you get in this thing in the first place? You got in this thing. How'd you receive the Spirit of God? Did, did self ever give you what you needed? Never. Mankind has been living in self, trusting in self, looking to self throughout all of human history. Ever since uh, Eve and Adam in the garden said, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want to do. Mankind has been looking to self and has been likewise in bondage to the governance and authority of self. There's plenty of people out there. We even use the terminology. How many times have you heard someone say something like this? I just can't help myself. You ever stop and break down what that means? I can't help myself. Self can't be helped. There's a Bible phrase for that, uh, that, the, uh, that the flesh is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. One of these days, hey, listen, God's going to replace your flesh, but He ain't going to regenerate it. One of these days, yeah, he's going to eradicate it, but he ain't going to consecrate it. Your flesh, Paul said it this way, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. We got in this thing because we quit listening to self. So why now would you and I believe that we would find peace and satisfaction and fulfillment by living for self and not living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Not only should we question our faith concerning the person and partaking of our faith. Look at verse number 3. We find this is a two for one. All right, You don't even need a coupon for this. Look what it says. Are ye so foolish? That's strong language, man. Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? I'd say we need to question our faith concerning the progress of our faith. Here's what he said knowing that you were unable to save yourself and to help yourself and that you had to have the Spirit of God imparted to you to change your life. Why now would you believe that you ought to ignore the leading of the Spirit of God and instead lean upon self to be made a more righteous person? He's saying the self couldn't make you make you righteous before. So why now would you think, and by the way, when he says the works of the law, uh, it's true. You could you could talk about it in terms of the works of the law of commandment, but also likewise in the works of the law of conscience, not living our life in accordance to God's Word, but just by instinct, by gut, by however we feel or interpret right would be. And he's saying this, hey, listen, uh, whenever God brought you out of that mess you was in and made you something different, He did not use the flesh to do it. He mortified the flesh to do it. He created you a new creature. If God had to make us a new creature, that bespeaks this truth, that the old creature wasn't good enough. Now why would we go back to that old creature 
and say, I'm going to become a better Christian by letting that old creature lead me and guide me. I want to make a statement here. I want you to listen very carefully to it. Uh, sanctification is exercised in the life of a believer, not through striving, but through surrender. It is not through saying, I'm going to be a better me. It's through saying, I can't make my me any better than it is. It's wicked and rotten. But here's what I can do. I can mortify it. I can reckon it dead. I can say that me gets no options. It gets no seat at the table. It gets no voice in the discussion. And the only thing that matters is what God's Word says and teaches. And therefore, I'm going to mortify self. And I'm going to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God as He takes this Word and guides me with it and applies it in my life. By the way, that's not an altogether passive endeavor. It involves reading the Word of God. It's amazing. Why is it we struggle? I mean, I've never learned a thing from this Bible by osmosis. I've never just held it to my head and intuited anything. It's always taken reading it. And isn't it funny how stubborn our flesh is when we need guidance, how long we'll wait before we'll open this book and read it. Somehow we believe self's going to have the answer. Going to come riding in at the midnight hour and save us from having to do something as awful, Brother Ken, as reading our Bible. Isn't that silly? But that's how my flesh is. And I bet it's how your flesh is as well. Here's the truth. You're not going to grow as a Christian without the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and wielding it in your heart. And then you mortifying self and your ambitions and your desires and saying, what I want don't matter, what God want matter, wants matters. So because of that, I'm going to just yield to Him and let Him lead me. This is not a passive experience. This is not an occasional experience. It is a daily experience. That's why Paul said, I die daily. Uh, you know, uh, we, we always think, I think sometimes we miss the point of that. When it said, when Paul said, I die daily, you know what that implies? That flesh will rise daily. Every day. I know we look at these super Christians who go to the altar one time back in 1941 and then they're just perfect the rest of their life. But here's the reality. Ain't nobody like that. If you're going to live for God, it's going to be every day of your life mortifying self. Taking every day and putting it on the altar and saying, all right, God, it's here, here, my flesh is rising again. And instead, I'm going to mortify self and I'm going to trust in you day by day, dying daily. I think we ought to question our faith concerning the progress of our faith. Then look what it says, verse number four. He said, have you suffered so many things in vain? if it be yet in vain. Now, we're going to do something interesting here as we consider this. He's talking about the persecution of our faith. Now, for these believers in the early New Testament, when they left, turned their back on Judaism and went to Christ, it was a transformative moment for them. It was a radical thing. Uh, It's not uncommon to hear of Jewish, Orthodox Jewish families, whenever one of their children would convert to Christianity, for them to buy an empty casket and bury it and reckon that person dead for the rest of their life. When Paul says, if you're going to suffer with him, you've got to come without, or if you're going to come to Jesus, you've got to come with him suffering without the camp, that was figurative, but not totally. What he was saying is, you come to Christ, they're going to kick you out of the temple. They're going to kick you out of Judaism. They're going to turn their backs on you. They're going to unperson you. And you're going to have to walk off with only your family of church as your family. He's talking to Jewish individuals, some of them that have believed on Christ and have paid a steep, steep price for it. And now let's stop and think about this as Gentiles. Two applications I'd make. One is this. If self was good enough to get it done, 
Why did we alienate ourselves from this world by coming to Calvary in the first place? When you went to Calvary, you put a division between yourself and this world system. Christ took up residence in your heart and life. And now the one that lives in you is hated by this world. Now, if you could have just listened to yourself and trusted in self, why'd you go through all that? Now, here's the truth. You came to Christ because you were bankrupt and knew it. You came to Christ because self had failed you for the four millionth time. And finally, in your heartbreak, you said, I'm done with that. If I have to turn my back on the world to get help and to get hope and to get peace, it's exactly what I'll do. And you came to Christ and He separated you from this world. and He indwelt your heart and life. Now, the question is, why would we do all that if it was in vain? Here's what Paul's trying to do. Let me just pause. Can I pause? Let me hit pause for a second. Paul's trying to jar their mind into common sense. What he's trying to do is to get them to stop and think about what they did when they got born again and evaluate the way they're living in light of that. And he's saying, why did you go through all that? If now you can just ignore what God's Word teaches and says and trust in yourself, your own instinct and intuition and your own way of living. Why did you go through all that? But I'd say there's a second application to this that regards not just the persecution of the faithless, but also the persecution of the flesh. And you and I both know what it's like to come to Christ. You had to crawl over the cut glass that your flesh threw out in front of you to try to keep you from coming to God and admitting you as a sinner and needed to be saved. Your flesh fought you tooth and toenail just like mine did. Whenever you got born again, all those various lies the devil plugs into your mind about how people are going to judge you and criticize you and say this and say that and you're giving up your fun way of living and you ain't going to be able to enjoy life anymore and God's going to be a taskmaster to you. Your flesh tried every trick in the book to keep you from coming to God. What does that suggest about the flesh's phobia of the authority of God? Why so much persecution if God wasn't doing something real in your heart and life? when He saved you. Paul says, why would you go back to that? Having paid that price, persecuted the flesh, mortified self, humiliated yourself to God by admitting you're a sinner and can't save yourself. Why would you do all that if you could just ignore and live your own way? Let's think about one last one and I'll be done. Look at verse 5. He asks this question, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, Doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He asks us to question our faith concerning the power of our faith. And he makes this simple point. Nothing changed in your life till you came to Christ. He gave you his spirit and now he ever presently today works miracles among you. And that was not accomplished by self or intuition. That was not accomplished by doing your own thing and going your own way. That was accomplished when you yielded to God and let Him have His will in His way in your life. And he says, now, why would we think that the power to serve God would come from self when self never did have any power to serve God? We just got through VBS this week. Man, I praise God for it. I don't know what we was running on. Caffeine, you know, adrenaline. But I like to think in the midst of all of it that the hand of God was on us, helping us get through this past week. And I trust and believe that it was, and I saw that that was the case in, in people's lives. But you know, what a shame it would be 
For us to go as far with Christ as admitting that self is unproductive, uh, unrighteous, incapable of doing anything transformative in our life, and then at the last second say, but I'm going to serve God in the energy of the flesh instead of serving Him in the power of the Spirit. I mean, the whole lesson, the whole truth of all of it when He saved you was that you couldn't save yourself. Why would we now think that self would be enough for us to serve God? We can't do it in the energy of ourselves. We must do it in the power and demonstration of the Spirit of God. How does that happen, preacher? By yielding to the Lord and to the governance and guidance of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the Word of God. When we do that, God has His will, His way. And can I say this? His will and His way are way better than your will and your way. So I hope you're questioning these things about your faith. And I hope that tonight, if there's been any area of your life, Paul's saying, look at your life and ask yourself, does it line up? with what God has already done? Does it make sense in light of what you coming to Christ spoke of and testified of? If it doesn't, you know what we ought to do? We don't, we don't need to ask God to get in line with us. We're the ones out of line. We ought to get our life in line with Him and His Word. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open. If God has stirred your heart, I want you to come. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can come and find a place even right now. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus, we ask it in His name.